ask me why I'm always teasing you. You hate to have me call you pretty baby. Whether you like it or not, there's going to be a big change around here, and it starts tonight. Hello and welcome back to the Queens and Rebels history podcast that happens to be mostly about women. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, I have a very special guest here tonight. And it's my wonderful husband, Michael. Hot husband. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everybody. So I've decided to have my husband on here because October is a special month for us, I guess, if you want to elaborate a bit. Oh, no. Well, I guess it's special because it's Halloween, and I know this is one of your favorite times of the year for everything. And we met and got married in October, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that too. Yes, that little detail happened, so... I've always liked October. Yes, Some... and our first date was in October. Yes, it's very cozy. Mm-hmm. So we are going to continue with part two of Jack the Ripper's Victims. Um, talking to you through a turkey-induced haze is a Canadian Thanksgiving this weekend. And we had some family over. So I'm lucky that Michael is a good cook. He made a very delicious turkey with stuffing. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's just my mom's recipe. and ah, It was something we've done every year. So mm-hmm. nice and easy. Yes. And it was good. our cat was definitely having the best time because my parents and grandma were over and my dad gives him copious amounts of Yes, million treats, probably. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give him one or two, and your dad will give him a handful. Yeah, so let's, I guess, jump into my notes, because we have quite a bit to talk about. I do want to condense this into a part, three parts, not four, even though I could probably extend it more. But I've uh, done some self-organizing and scheduled out uh, my podcast until the end of the year, so I'll try to stay on track. So let's start. Uh, what do you know about, I guess, Jack the Ripper? Not a whole lot. Like, mm-hmm. I obviously know high-level stuff, like mm-hmm. the gruesome unsolved murders and that mm-hmm. time, and I guess from the mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes type of era and all that, so... I don't know a whole lot, so mm-hmm. I'm just interested in what I we know. have here. It's interesting how he turned almost into a mythical figure at this point, but not much is known about his victims. They're so kind I, of... I know next to nothing, to be honest, about the mm-hmm. victims. So Yeah, they are kind of ignored in favor of trying to speculate who the murderer was, which... I guess feels a bit unfair times. So uh, that's who we are going to focus on. And I guess uh, this uh, subject matter is intended for a mature audience. So just keep that in mind. And let's dive right in. So in the past episode, we had a brief introduction uh, to, uh, I guess, the area where Jack the Ripper operated, the time 
And uh, we talked about his first victim. Uh, today we are going to talk about um, another one, unfortunately. So her name was Annie Eliza Smith. And she was born in September of 1841. The precise date is unknown. We do know the month. Her father, George Smith, was only 15 when in 1834 he left Lincolnshire for London and was recruited as a trooper in a cavalry. Can you imagine leaving your house at 15? Yeah, that's definitely unheard of. If I was 15 and leaving today, well... I don't think I could have survived. No. I guess it's a different <laughs> mm -hmm. time, but still, it's as a little young, I definitely want to be mature enough. I guess people had no choice, and uh, I suppose the army is a good place for lost souls that are looking for somewhere to belong to. So he was young, he was recruited, and... So you can actually get recruited into the army at 14, 15? I suppose so, because it does say he was recruited as a trooper. Perhaps he was older, who knows, at the point of recruitment. But uh, he did make a career out of it. He was a, a military man for the rest of his life, almost. And on February 10, 19, uh, sorry, 1840, he was actually in London to participate in the royal wedding in the position of a guard. So he had some prime seats to watch uh, the royal ceremony and that's where he most likely met Ruth Chapman who just like him came to London in search of work. It was possible uh, they met near uh, George's barracks uh, because Ruth's uh, relative worked nearby and those are the parents of Annie. In general the army discouraged marriage uh, but uh, closed their eyes on cohabitation. The wages were very low and it was difficult to provide for a family. Additionally, such relationships could easily ruin the woman's reputation, while the soldier could easily carry on with his military career. So a year after they met, uh, Ruth was experiencing a similar predicament where she was not officially married but uh, she was branded as a soldier's woman and, and she fell pregnant. So upon little Annie's arrival, her mother would have lost her job and um, social standing within the community. So such women were referred to as dolly mops and were viewed as um, amateur prostitutes, the women that followed soldiers around. And it's kind of funny how things have changed because now the army, I guess, puts a strong emphasis on family values uh, as it was uh, discouraging uh, families beforehand. So these uh, dolly mops, um, or uh, I guess they were kind of like military groupies, you would call them, they would follow the army around and earn their living by doing needlework or laundry. On average, only six out of a hundred soldiers were given permission to marry. Uh, because they did have to get official permission back in those days. Wait, so the army had to give permission to the soldiers to marry? Yeah, they had to seek permission to marry. It is quite surprising, isn't it? But yeah. I suppose they really tried to discourage marriages. 
Women who entered relationships with a soldier were often tied to the army since it was the only place that could offer them a chance to survive because they were ostracized because of their soiled reputation. If a soldier was to ever be stationed away from his girlfriend, she would be left behind without any financial support. And imagine also having kids in these kind of circumstances. And obviously, people did have kids. And they had sex and <laughs> contraceptives were not widely available. Of course, you guessed that these so-called dolly mobs were just shunned by society at large. So I'm just trying to get at, I suppose, uh, the point that they were kind of stuck within that military ecosystem once uh, they started dating a soldier, which was not the best place to be. Uh, fortunately for Ruth, George actually received permission to marry in February of 1842. So technically Annie was born out of wedlock, but uh, people did close their eyes on that fact because uh, at the end her parents did marry. As you can imagine, the family life was completely defined by George's military career. I suppose it's not that different these days. No, but not as harsh, it seems like. No, not nearly as harsh, but I suppose if you have an army spouse, still a tough relationship, I think. Oh, I don't... For sure, just look at some of our family friends, right? If they're stationed away and all that, it's hard. Yeah. You're gone for... It's very hard. You're gone for six months at a time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Ruth uh, and, and the kids uh, were defined by George's military career back in the day more so than now. And the children were provided, um, the children and the wife, I should say, were provided with half rations and could live in the barracks. Living arrangements for official military families were not provided until a decade later. And living in the barracks was... Uh, as you can imagine, horrific. A young family had to start their life by sharing these barracks with others. And for some privacy, they would section off their own little corner by sheets, basically. So it sounds kind of like a prison of sorts, if you... <laughs> so I'm sure you will not be surprised to hear that um, these places had awful living conditions. An 1857 inspection concluded that the place was downright dreadful. Um, again, inspection wasn't needed for us to assume that. Uh, poor sanitation, lack of ventilation, um, lack of laboratory facilities were made worse by a boiled food that the army fed people, you know, just on top of the other uh, miseries like a lack of privacy. Uh, and uh, these places were also seen as immoral since women, mostly unmarried, shared a space with a single man who would freely stroll around the common space, uh, sometimes making lewd remarks. Sorry, official families did have a few benefits, uh, such as accessing the barrack library and medicine from military supply. But most importantly, they were given the permission to set aside a small sum of money and were granted a small allowance to rent accommodation. This proved especially useful to the ever-growing Smith family who had six kids in total by the end of it all. 
So Annie, as we mentioned, was the oldest, followed by George William Thomas, Emily, Letitia, Ellie, Miriam, and William, who was born in 1854. Annie was 13 years older than her younger sibling. So they were all born in a span of 13 years. Another tangible benefit provided by the army was military-funded education for the kids that was superior to what was offered to working class. And I do believe this was for legally recognized families only. So um, these quote-unquote dolly mops, unfortunately, did not receive the benefit of education for their children. But as far as all these benefits go, I think education was by far the most important because it did give people the opportunity to maybe try and climb out of their current predicament. I don't know how you feel, but... Well, it must have, must have still been pretty hard, I would guess. can't imagine there was much climbing out of other mm-hmm. social classes at that time. Or that's I, my understanding, anyway. I think so, but... Yeah, and having it there, I guess, would, would have been of mm-hmm. benefit. So through the military, Annie was not only provided with education, but also had contact with upper-class life. Her father's regiment was prestigious, and aristocratic officers would often be in close proximity to the royal family. Annie was able to catch glimpses of the elegant villas and fashionably dressed royals even. Her own working-class life would have been completely different. The family could only afford low-income housing on the father's meager salary. They lived in cramped conditions, occupying two rooms in a house they were sharing with other families. In late spring of 1854, Carlatina outbreaks were wreaking havoc on the city. Especially affected was the poor population And that's always the case, even now with Corona, the poor suffer the most. And the sad part is that devastating viral outbreaks are not a new phenomenon. I guess now that the world is so connected and we can travel easily, it's going to be a new reality, I think, these viral outbreaks. Yeah, I think so too, unfortunately. And I guess... Hoping there was being a wake up call with COVID. We have better practice, we'll have better practices and everything coming out of it. So, yes, unfortunately, medicine made significant advances today where we can have safe vaccines. And unfortunately, not everyone wants to take them, but yeah, that's um, a different story that I won't come. I mean, they are here and they're free and they're available, and people are very fortunate to have access to them. As we will go into, uh, many lives are saved with vaccines because this uh, Scarlatina outbreak was completely devastating without vaccinations. On May 3rd, the Daily News wrote, I quote, Malignant Scarlatina carried off all five of his children in nine days when writing about a coachman's family. On July 27th, the Morning Post reported, I quote, the disease has visited some families with severity. An instance is reported in which three children died of it in the same family within the six days, unquote. I mean, this is tragic, and again, it wreaked complete devastation 
Uh, so we are very lucky to have vaccines and prevent these tragedies from happening. Uh, things only got worse when on top of scarlet fever, typhus arrived on the scene. And I cannot, like, I can try to imagine how vulnerable people must have felt at this time because the, the disease could easily spread through fleas and those were hard to avoid in these cramped, dirty conditions. So you kind of uh, had to hope for the best, right? And hope it, you survive through this. Yeah, there must have been this feeling of helplessness that you couldn't shake. I mean, that's a terrifying to me to think about because uh, they really did not, as, again, medicine was not as advanced. So if you had these outbreaks that would happen quite often, actually, like you just kind of had to wait it out. Yeah, that feeling mm. of helplessness, be, mm. that would be devastating. Yeah, Like even during COVID here, like a lot of people felt helpless. Mm -hmm. We are in a much better position. Yeah, and you can see how it affects the poor. Of course, the rich could uh, escape into their villas, but the poor had to stay. And uh, the Smith family was uh, also affected. At only two and a half years old, Miriam uh, passed away in May. Uh, William, another uh, kid, passed away at, in June at five months old only and followed by Ali a week later. George Thomas was the eldest to die at the age of 12. So out of six children, only two were spared from the disease. And this all happened in a span of three weeks. Like, that is devastating to lose that many kids in, in three weeks, right? Oh, well, for sure. I can't mm -hmm. imagine what would happen. Extremely traumatic for the family. And then only two remaining sisters, Annie and Emily, were joined later on by two more sisters, Georgina, born in 1876, and Miriam Ruth in 1858 so in total there were eight kids but unfortunately four passed away and two more sisters were born by this time annie was 15 years old this often meant um, the end of education for girls especially and an expectation to make a wage most often through domestic service. A domestic service was a kind of a rite of passage for teenage girls from working class families. And Annie, just like many her age, also entered domestic service. By 1861, she was working for a successful architect and his brother, a retired stockbroker. As one of three employees, Annie's days were filled with heavy labor. And I cannot stress enough how and their appreciated and underpaid uh, domestic female labor was, but it was absolutely brutal. Um, like me and Michael, we like to watch these living history documentaries. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't think about things like laundry these days, right? You mm -hmm. just throw it in, but before it's... The whole ordeal. And this was time during when they had tons of coal, right? This was all coal powered at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that everything was all dirty and all that coal dust would get everywhere. That would have been... But nothing was mechanized at yeah. the same time. Like domestic labor was not mechanized, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. To even wash things, you had to heat it, fill everything by hand. It's Yeah, just it, it's a crazy amount of labor that running the household required. And Annie did not have much time to communicate with the rest of the family that was also undergoing changes. Uh, her parents, they were growing older, and George, her father, had to retire. 
Soldiering was a young man's game, um, after all, and it was the only life uh, that he and the family ever knew, so that must have been a very uncertain time for them. Luckily, an opportunity presented itself in the position of a gentleman's valet, of a commanding officer. Uh, George was an ideal candidate uh, for this uh, prestigious role. He was dependable, he uh, was known for his good conduct, and this probably was the best outcome for George, uh, who did not really have um, any other skills besides his military career. He was on top of the household servant hierarchy in this position, along with the butler and the cook, and received pay on top of his small army pension. His family uh, settled in Knightsbridge on a more permanent basis, uh, so some can argue he was better off retiring from the military, or at least in my perspective, it seems like. In 1963, George's employer agreed to host a grand a social event for officers and their ladies. George accompanied his employer and was housed in a pub with another servant, I believe. The following morning, and a trigger warning for this, uh, if you want to skip this about 30 seconds or so, um, you can because it will be dealing with uh, someone completing suicide. Uh, but basically, George cut his own throat with a razor, as concluded by the coroner, and the family was now mainly composed of women, with an exception of a young brother, Fontaine, who was still a young boy. Of course, uh, this put the family in a very tough situation, since women did not earn much and had very limited opportunities, both financially and legally. They were not only grieving for a family member, but were faced with financial insecurity. Their chief provider was gone, and the military pension could not be claimed by widows at that time. So the possibility of homelessness or a workhouse was very real. Um, and it's crazy to think about how little security people had, right? You went from being a family of this prestigious role of a gentleman's valet and having a steady income to basically overnight just yeah you, you gotta be thankful now for the social support we have now for that but even even now sometimes still not enough absolutely so luckily the smith women uh, landed on their feet and within a year returned to their lower middle class neighborhood of knightsbridge they were quite enterprising, so Ruth, following the, uh, her husband's death, would have received a quarterly wage payout, and it was also not uncommon for the employer to give a, a donation to the widow, uh, so she spent the money wisely by leasing a home with a scullery that could be used for taking in laundry for some income and rented out all the extra rooms, sublet them to others. Uh, so uh, they did have a stable lodgings. Uh, John Chapman was one of the uh, people inquiring about uh, these lodgings. He came from Suffolk, uh, from a Suffolk family of uh, horse caregivers. And at this time, Annie entered old maid territory. <laughs> she uh, was at the very senior age of 27. <laughs> yeah, it's so different now what the mm -hmm. expectations of old and young are. 
Uh, but uh, she did get married to John uh, Chapman, uh, their tenant, on the 1st of May, 1869. Uh, just like Annie's father, John was at the top of the servant's hierarchy in his role as coachman. Uh, the role uh, provided a stable income, clothing that the employer provided, and rent-free accommodations. Uh, the coachmen were expected to live near the stables, uh, right in the employer's upper-class properties. And accommodations would usually have three, uh, four rooms. I mean, not a bad alternative uh, for what we previously discussed. And another benefit of the position was the coachman's wife did not have to work. This uh, was seen as a sign of respectability. By 1873, Annie had given birth to two girls, Emily Ruth and Annie Georgina. In 1879, the family moved to a country estate of Berkshire following a new employment opportunity. This was an improvement uh, compared to their previous gig in London. Uh, this employment had more stability since the London job was uh, seasonal. The family was accustomed to living adjacent to the stables, but now they had their own separate coachman's house, and this included a kitchen, a scullery, a larder, three bedrooms, living room, and a formal sitting room, so that was quite nice, actually. They could now place their kids in respectable schools for young ladies and even employ a maid to help out around the house, so it's a significant improvement. At this point, you might be thinking that this sounds like a lovely life, but we did not talk about Annie's lifelong and devastating struggle with alcoholism yet. Her sister Miriam wrote the following, I quote, We tried to persuade the one given to drink to give it up. She was married and in a good position. Over and over again, she signed the pledge and tried to keep it. Over and over again, she was tempted and fell, unquote. She did not name her sister directly in uh, this piece she wrote for a temperance uh, magazine, but it was very obvious that she was talking about Annie. Over the course of Annie's marriage, she gave birth to eight children, all of them marked by health issues due to Annie's drinking. And only three would survive. One of those kids was unfortunately severely disabled. A lot of them in pictures that were available uh, bear the mark of a fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, in 1882, Annie lost her older oldest daughter, but she was not present to provide final moments of comfort to her kid. Instead of partaking in a newly developed habit of wandering around country roads drunk, Annie started to acquire a bad reputation amongst the locals and the police. Addiction to this day comes with a lot of stigma and judgment, so you can imagine at Annie's time it was even more misunderstood and it was closely connected to a moral weakness and a sign of degeneracy. So Annie's behavior threatened the reputation of the entire family and especially their standing with the employer. Following the daughter's uh, passing, Annie's sisters made a trip to collect Annie and bring her to a Spellthorn sanatorium on the outskirts of London. 
Such institutions were a complete novelty. They provided a place for rehabilitation rather than punishment, an idea that for us seems logical, but back in the day was, again, very new and was just emerging during Annie's stay in the home. The facility catered primarily to middle-class women, and Annie committed herself to a year-long stay. In December 20th, according to Miriam, she emerged a transformed person, I quote, um, she came out a changed woman, a sober wife and mother, and things were only happy, unquote. Are you surprised to hear they had rehab facilities? I don't think so. I think there was always, like, you look at Victorian times. This is Victorian times, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Victorian times, there was charities and all that, but yeah, I'm mm -hmm. not too surprised, but, and I guess I'm surprised mm -hmm. that it was more rehabilitation, like, there's the possibility for that, but mm -hmm. yeah, I would have I expected something. It wouldn't be mm -hmm. as available as it is mm -hmm. today. Yeah, to us, it seems logical that addiction problems need rehabilitation, right? But back in those days, there was still this prevailing attitude because people were failing and they were degenerates. They should be punished. And today we have a much better understanding of mental health. So I addiction, think, yeah, yes. mental health, addiction. Unfortunately, Annie's sobriety did not last. According to the family's re recollection, after several months of sobriety, she got a hold of alcohol and went out drunkenly wandering the streets. Chapman's employer, fearing silencing their own reputation in aristocratic circles, threatened Chapman with dismissal unless Annie is removed from the home. The family was faced with a very tough choice. It was highly unlikely that John would be able to find a better job. He also had three children to provide for, one of them severely disabled. And the decision to separate was mutual and heartbreaking for both. I mean, I cannot imagine how it must have felt. Because by all accounts, John did love his wife. And unfortunately, he had to let her go for the benefit of the kids, essentially. Yeah, that would, that would be tough. It's also kind of weird that, well, I guess for the times it would have been more normal. But that, that an employer would have that much in your home life. Oh, it was absolutely normal. I mean, labor laws were not <laughs> around Non-existent, yeah. yeah. So, um, as I said, by all accounts, John was dedicated and loving to his wife. And he did not abandon her. He provided a generous weekly allowance that would uh, continue to support Annie's middle-class lifestyle and hope that she would return under the, her family's roof to get uh, sober Annie continued struggling with her addiction, eventually leaving her family to rent a single room while spending the rest of her allowance on drink. And I can imagine the family was well-meaning and tried to help her out. But uh, because addiction was not understood, I imagine it was very... Uh, they blamed her quite a bit. That's just my speculation for, for failing, right? And she probably blamed herself too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, so she, she left the family, struck out on her own, and eventually she took up with a man called Jack Stevie, who also shared a love of drink. That was uh, unfortunately what kept them together. And it was just a heartbreaking situation for everyone. And his family watched her spiral, 
while um, Annie was probably reminded uh, that she was a failure for continuing to drink. And according to the era, female drunkness was an abdomination that carried a higher moral failure than that of a male one. It was seen as a degeneracy on par with prostitution. Her reputation was further sullied by the fact that she was cohabitating with uh, another man. Uh, Jack Stevie could explain how Annie came to Whitechapel in 1884 um, because she most likely followed him there. Unlike most of the residents of the area, she did not have to live under such conditions because she received a fairly a generous allowance, but I suppose the rest kind of went on a drinking habit. And the payments did stop in December of 1886. Uh, Annie's husband uh, had fallen ill and passed away, leaving Annie penniless uh, shortly after she was abandoned uh, by her male companion as well. Uh, he probably uh, was using her <laughs> for the, for the what money. Happened, what happened to all the kids? I don't know what happened to the kids. I can only assume they were placed in relatives' care because Annie was not able to care for them. Uh, but or were they old enough by that time, 1886? I suppose some were old enough and struck out on their own, but there was that uh, disabled child that required care, which mm. I'm assuming relatives would pitch in. Uh, because nothing is mentioned about Annie ever having contact with her children. And according to those who knew Annie, she tried to earn an income through crocheting, uh, selling flowers, matches, and everything she could get her hands on. Uh, her sister Miriam wrote, I quote, She used to come to us at home. We gave her clothes and tried in every way to win her back. For she was a mere beggar, unquote. So she was not completely abandoned, but I guess she was so far gone in her addiction spiral that... That her family essentially couldn't figure out how to help her. Mm -hmm. And at this point, uh, she started to physically decline from drinking. Uh, she was hungry from malnutrition and a potential case of tuberculosis. According to those who knew Annie, she often did not have enough money to pay for a DOS house for a full week and often spent a few days sleeping on the streets. On the night of September 7th, she was once again faced with the familiar scenario of having to sleep outside, not knowing that she will encounter a monster. When documenting the victim's occupation, police simply wrote the word prostitute, although there was no evidence to suggest Annie ever took part in sex work. She was never cautioned for such trade, nor was there a single witness who could confirm it. The lodge keeper was very clear in dismissing the idea, stating that Annie did not bring any male visitors to her bed. As a matter of fact, she was in a steady relationship with a common-law partner closer to the end of her life. This did not matter much for the public, to whom she was a fallen woman already, uh, so uh, she already had a solid reputation. She was kind of a write-off in people's eyes, and the newspapers often omitted witness testimony, simply stating that Annie earned her living on the streets, leaving it open to interpretation or to a very obvious assumption that she was a sex worker. A common thread linked 
these uh, tragic tales that we talk about, and it's the absence of women's voices and a lack of sympathy for the victims. We will see a similar sensation hungry press in the next a tragedy of Elizabeth Stride as well. I guess the press, it's not much different these days either. There's always a hunger for sensationalizing, right? And sordid details. So. Yeah, I'm wondering now. I think there's more codes of ethics with a lot of the reporting, for the most part, I guess. I would hope so, yes. There is a, a some ethical considerations, I would hope, reporters take into account. I guess uh, we'll start talking about Elizabeth now. She was born on November 27, 1843, to Gustav and Beata Eriksson. The Eriksons were a family of Swedish farmers living in a four-room farmhouse, and Elizabeth was the second of four children growing up in a conservative Lutheran rural community. Unlike the previous victims, she received minimal schooling, primary learning how to read so she could study scripture, her life, by all accounts, was fairly quiet, as you can imagine, living on a farm. Probably uh, included a lot of work, very typical farm work. Uh, she grew up in a religious community. She would have uh, been studying the Bible every single day under the watchful eye of a patriarch. And uh, like many girls before her, at the age of 17, Elizabeth was sent to seek employment in domestic service. This was seen as a rite of passage almost, and it would make or break a person's character. Female labor in Sweden was extremely cheap. Employment in service was compulsory for those who did not make an income of the land. This meant that even working class families could sometimes afford a housekeeper. Furthermore, urban families preferred employ, uh, to employ country girls that were seen as less morally corrupted since they were shielded away from the pitfalls of city life. And um, you can see another emerging theme where morality was mostly uh, the female burden to bear. There was a very sharp double standard between the genders. Elizabeth ended up working for one uh, of such working-class family in Gothenburg. In February of 1864, Elizabeth's employment was dissolved, and by March of 1865, the reason for the dismissal became very obvious. Uh, at six months pregnant, she could no longer hide her baby bump. Um, usually, servants had a very little interaction with men from outside the household. Uh, by contrast, inside the house, uh, they encountered the males living there quite frequently. Uh, so most likely she fell pregnant uh, by one of her employers. Uh, she never named who. Occasionally, these naive uh, country girls, not always consenting, found themselves in a similar predicament. Uh, while men often walked away from this relationship unscathed, it would completely destroy and devastate the life of women. The onus was placed entirely on women. Um, they were the ones, uh, they were morally corrupt seductresses. And, and again, as I said, it didn't matter if it was consensual or not. It was always their fault. And the fallen women who, um, they had to answer for their wicked ways, right? In the eyes of society, 
they were uh, dismissed as um, as corrupted. Basically, they did not. They they lost their value, if you will, and this often pushed women into sex work as a means of survival. The Gothenburg sex workers were at the time required to register with the police. This was um, the state's attempt to curb the spread of venereal disease. So to further traumatize the already extremely vulnerable group, the registered women would undergo inspections during which they would be ordered to strip naked in an outdoor courtyard while the policemen kept watch over them and the medical commissioner inspected them for signs of disease. Elizabeth would have been abandoned by her family, and uh, she ended up um, as one of these registered sex workers, officially registered as public woman number 97, under the alias of Alman Kvina. On April of 1865, during one such inspection, it was discovered that Elizabeth caught syphilis, and this was a huge problem in Europe at the time. It was just a rife with venereal disease that was, again, not well understood. Syphilis was a death sentence. Uh, there was no cure. And she was sent to Gothenburg's venereal disease hospital, where they would attempt to cure her. Another trigger warning here. This is where she gave birth to a stillborn premature girl. At the time, syphilis, as I said, was not understood, and it was believed that once the visual signs of the outbreak were no longer present, the patient was cured. Of course, we now know that it just lies dormant, and you can still infect people. After the first stay at the hospital, Elizabeth was discharged to return again once more when the disease was visible, until it went into its latent phase, meaning she, it would lay dormant to return after many years for its final terminal and devastating stage. And I believe at this stage, she could no longer infect people, but um, I might be wrong. Once a woman appeared on a sex worker's register, it was almost impossible for her to find a different profession. You were stuck in that vicious loop. Elizabeth was registered as living in a sex worker's district until she met Maria Ingrid Weissner. At the time, upper and middle class women took interest in charity work, particularly in rescue of these quote-unquote fallen women. Maria, the wife of a German musician, took Elizabeth into her employment as domestic servant, and her name would have been stricken for, from the register at the request of Maria, who vouched for Elizabeth's character writing, I quote, The servant maid of Elizabeth Gustafsson was engaged in my service on November 10th, and I am responsible for her good conduct as long as she stays in my service, unquote. It was likely through her employer connections that Elizabeth was made aware of a position open to a maid that is willing to travel to London. On February 7th, 1866, at the age of 22, perhaps wishing to have a new start to life, Elizabeth departed to London. And that's my speculation. I would assume she would want to leave everything behind and get the to hell get out of there. Fresh start kind of thing. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was easy to assume a new identity. Um, no Facebook and Instagram back then. No. <laughs> And that's what she would do uh, from time to time. We would see uh, that she would assume these identities. But if you had to assume a new identity, who would you be? 
Max power. Max <laughs> Evil overlord. Just like that, you know, the, the super evil villain house that we pass every day. That oh, would yeah. be me. Yeah, we have this house that we passed and it looks like a villain's lair. <laughs> yeah, really nice with like all these glass walls and everything. And it, what we think is some evil super villain is there plotting his... Death laser. Yeah, his death laser. <laughs> wow, Michael, you really went on the opposite spectrum <laughs> from respectable working engineer to an evil villain. <laughs> Zero to a hundred. <laughs> I mean, again, not surprised that she tried to change her life, right? She found a position in a wealthy London family as a part of several household staff. In 1969, Elizabeth changed employers and started working for a widow who ran a genteel lodging house. Later after her death, others speculated that Elizabeth left her first London employer due to another sordid affair, but this was most likely untrue since uh, she did receive a good positive recommendation letter. In her new em uh, employment, she most likely carried out similar duties of keeping the house clean, uh, running an errands, etc. And while running errands, it was not uncommon for servant girls to pop by the newly trendy coffee houses to grab some refreshments or snacks. And this is most likely where the pretty 25-year-old caught the eye of John Stride. She's been through so much already. I was actually surprised to realize she was only 25. Wow. Mm -hmm. Holy cow. Yeah, my, my life was much less eventful by 25 than yeah. Much more fortunate. So a bit about John Stride. Uh, he came uh, from a, a working class family that made a bit of a fortune, actually, and moved up uh, in the social circles. His father was a famous uh, woodworker, furniture maker, and uh, John uh, took on the same craft. He was unmarried and in his late 40s, respectable and fairly successful in his field. And he would have promised security to a young maid that already lived through a lot of tragedy. So on March 7th, 1869, the couple married with Elizabeth providing a fake family name on the registry. John and some of his brothers from the Stride family moved to the east end of London. This was most likely due to its proximity to the docks where carpentry labor was always needed. Here, the Strides tried to open a coffee house of their own. Um, John was not a drinker. He was uh, quite religious. And uh, coffee houses uh, provided, at the time, provided a trendy alternative, especially for men. It was a fairly male space uh, who did not drink. Uh, unfortunately, this venture failed, as a lot of inhabitants on the east side of London preferred pubs. <laughs> docks and everything, right? You always expect a sailor to go out mm -hmm. for a beer or a pint after. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the working class would drown their sorrows, I suppose, not in coffee. <laughs> I'd imagine beer was cheaper than coffee. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine you don't want to be hyper aware of your crappy life. You want to kind of <laughs> drink and forget it. But uh, this left uh, the couple financially insecure. Whatever savings John had, they were all sunken into the business. 
And due to her syphilis, Elizabeth had trouble conceiving at the time when a woman's identity was completely tied to motherhood. Um, this pressure, no doubt, must have contributed to the couple's strained relationship. They fought quite a bit, and in March of 1877, eight years into their marriage, Elizabeth left her husband. During this time, she was picked up by the police on vagrancy laws. And had a brief stay in the workhouse. Uh, she was also arrested on an attempt to defraud a charity by claiming to have lost her family in the Princess Alice disaster. So this disaster was uh, a boat capsizing in September of 1878. It was a tourist vessel and it killed uh, 650 people. I mean, uh, Elizabeth sometimes would uh, take on new identities, and uh, it is quite dodgy, but uh, she was trying to survive at the time where it was uh, very hard. Uh, on April of 1881, the Strides briefly reconciled, staying in a single room, a considerable downgrade from their previous lodgings of several rooms about their now closed coffee house. And the reconciliation only lasted several months. I'm not surprised. I, I assume they never really got to know each other to begin with. Um, people would just get married after a couple of months of courting. It's insane to me, but different times, different standards. Can you marry someone just after a couple of months? Can you imagine? I know it's terrifying. I wouldn't know. I don't think I definitely didn't know you well enough after a couple months. You never know. You don't know the person. Yeah, for sure. Elizabeth might might have formally separated from John, who paid her a small maintenance sum. This was not an official divorce, but she moved out and would have gotten some kind of allowance from her husband. Uh, since it was her his duty to, I guess, make sure the wife was not destitute. Uh, moving forward, Elizabeth stayed in lodging houses, supporting herself through work as a, a charwoman. And this was a position even lower than a maid of all work. While a maid of all work would have been employed by a family and did everything, a charwoman would offer help to those who could not afford live-in staff earning a meager wage while performing grueling work at different households. She lived in an area uh, that was predominantly Jewish, and she did actually learn to speak Yiddish on top of English, that she was quite fluent in, and she would help out uh, Jewish households, especially on Sabbath uh, from time to time. In 1883, Elizabeth took on another new identity, almost by a fluke, a hard of seeing Tayloress, Mary Malcolm, saw Elizabeth and became convinced she was her sister, also named Elizabeth, by the surname of Watt. Elizabeth Watt herself lived a migratory life, and it became easy for Mary to believe she ended up on the streets. So for five years, the women would periodically meet, and Mary tried to help out her quote-unquote sister financially as best as she could, and of course, Elizabeth didn't protest against it. It's kind of dodgy of her. She took on the sister's identity. On October of 1884, Elizabeth lost her estranged husband. This, of course, meant that even that small sum that he paid her out was gone. And the following month, she was arrested for soliciting and sentenced for seven day days in jail. So 
It seemed like she did, at least occasionally, took on sex work to survive. This was her only known charge. Soon after, Elizabeth entered a tumultuous relationship with a dock worker called Michael Kidney. The two shared the love of drink and her arrest for bad language and disorderly conduct increased. It was a very tumultuous relationship. They fought, they beat each other up. Uh, quite often, and this change from a shy rural girl into a disorderly drunk could have very well been outside of Elizabeth's control, but a symptom of her disease, as we now know syphilis does damage the brain, and um, a lot of people turn unrecognizable. She started to suffer from uh, epileptic fits, which was one of the symptoms of late syphilis, uh, she would have also suffered from dementia-like symptoms, delusions, hallucinations, erratic and violent behaviors. So this uh, could and probably was the potential explanation uh, to her change in character. She did lead a deceitful and isolated life, which made the events of her final days even more confusing than the rest of the victim's accounts. She was seen in a pub during her last day, by a few witnesses, and they present a lot of uh, contradicting sightings and claims. Uh, she could have gone out to try and solicit customers, as claimed by some. Whatever Elizabeth did on uh, the 29th of September, I'm sure she was not anticipating for, her to, for it to be her last day uh, on earth. She had no relatives or close friends to uh, challenge the stories that were spun about her in the press. At least for previous victims, there were some family members that would contradict um, these horrible character depictions that the press would spin in the newspapers. She was all on her own and was being written off as no great loss, another poor fallen woman who was almost guilty of the fate that befallen her, so lonely abandoned and met with cruelty for the most of her life. That was her unfortunate uh, lifespan. And on this depressing note, I guess we're going to end <laughs> part two of the three-part episode. Uh, next time, I am going to talk about two more victims and maybe Michael would want to come back for another sure. spooky recording. Thank you for being with us, Michael. Oh, you're thank you for having me on here. It was, I was going to say it's a pleasure, but mm -hmm. it was enjoyable to, and interesting to, mm -hmm. to talk about and read about these yes. victims. So what are your some final thoughts, maybe? To me, it's quite shocking how much poverty and insecurity people lived in. It makes me feel grateful for what I have. Yeah, I guess you're right. It makes me feel very grateful for what you have right now. Yes, yeah, so uh, I guess uh, it's something to reflect on, right? Things are not as bad uh, as before, and I hope everyone stays happy and healthy. And take care of yourselves, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, everybody.